Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Um, before we dive in, I just want to pray uh, for, for all of us here. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of every one of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, Lord. You are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. I think it's safe to say we live in a culture that is fascinated with the idea of the end of the world as we know it. I did a little bit of research on this, and I feel confident in saying that since 2010, this is just in nine years, over 100 pre-apocalyptic, apocalyptic, and post-apocalyptic movies have come out of Hollywood. You can find this out at postapocalypticmedia.com. It's an actual website. <laughs> Check it out. Um, but as I was doing a little bit of research into this cultural obsession of ours, two interesting things happened. First, I stumbled across this, luxury survival condos. So apparently some company has found these old abandoned uh, nuclear missile silos and they've fixer-uppered them into these amazing places where you can stay for a pretty penny when everything goes south. Um, complete with blast doors, an indoor pool, oxygen filters, five years of freeze-dried food per person. Um, and this can all be yours for as little as one and a half million dollars for half an underground floor, three million dollars for a whole floor, so if anyone wants to go in on one, let me know, and I can contribute maybe one billionth of that. Um, it's actually a real thing. But the second funny thing um, that happened as I was researching our interest in the end of the world is I had a conversation with Lena, my wife, um, who runs our farm here, uh, about the apocalypse. And we talked about the end of the world. And after a while, we were kind of like, I think we just need a cup of tea. It's time to chill out a little bit. I kid you not. 20 minutes later, Lena gets on Facebook and sees this ad, Calamityware. It says, you could be pestered by UFOs, harassed by robots, or I can't read the rest of it, it's kind of tiny. Other, or in, yeah, or inconvenienced by voracious carnivores. So, treat yourself to one of these beautiful porcelain mugs, and remember that things could always be worse available near you. I was not convinced that our devices are actually listening to us, but now I know. The end truly is coming. That is frightening. Um, you know, and so I was thinking about this, though, you know, why are we so interested in the end of the world? What, what is it that fuels this fascination for us? And I think at one level, it makes a lot of sense, right? We live in a pretty crazy world, um, we live currently in pretty crazy times. Things are divided, you know, in our country on a level that they haven't been in a while. Um, every time you turn on the news, it seems like something new that is crazy is going on. There are fires in California. The gap between the rich and the poor is rapidly widening. Climate change knocks on our doors even as we try to avoid it. Things are crazy. And... We're all way more aware of all of it than ever before because we have these magical things in our pockets that serve as an instant portal 
that transports us to all the terrors of the world in real time. And so with every buzz and every ding in our pocket, you know, we, we wonder, what, what is it going to be this time? What am I going to read about? What kind of shocking development or tragedy may have just happened? And we understandably are in a time where we are anxious and we're afraid. But I think it also needs to be said that I think it's true that human beings have always had this kind of sneaking suspicion, um, this kind of thought that, that maybe we're living at the end of times. You know, we've, we've kind of always had this idea that the events of our day, these are the most catastrophic things that have ever happened. These are the most important things that have happened in human history. Maybe this is the end of times. This is something I believe that we've always thought because it was actually no different in the time of Jesus. We see this in Jesus's day as well. So Jesus lived in, in modern-day Palestine, a relatively small piece of land, um, but that has basically been continuously fought over for the past several thousand years, conquered and reconquered, war after catastrophic war. And Jesus's own day was dominated by the experience of harsh rule by the Roman Empire. And many of his fellow Jews actually longed for a kind of apocalyptic intervention by God to overthrow their oppression, to set up their kingdom again and give them freedom, to set things right. They longed for what they called the day of the Lord to come. And they interpreted the events of their day. They wondered if that might be a sign that the day of the Lord was near. And so it's in the midst of this turbulent atmosphere that Jesus arrived on the scene proclaiming news of a new kingdom. He said a new kingdom was at hand, the kingdom of God. And we've been thinking about what that is, looking at what that kingdom is about through our series called Parables of the Kingdom, Stories of the Kingdom. And at the climax of Jesus' movement, he rode into Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, a place that was politically charged and divided People were divided about what their response to the oppressive Roman Empire ought to be. He rode into the city, and all eyes were on him as to what he would do. And this is where our gospel reading from this morning picks up. Um, during this intense week that Jesus spent in Jerusalem, the last week it would turn out of his life. And with all eyes on him, Jesus makes a super provocative and graphic comment about the destruction of Jerusalem's temple. It sounds a little bit like a scene from an apocalyptic movie. And so this conversation unfolds about perhaps the end of the world. And as we look at this together, I want us to see in particular three different responses, three different security blankets that these folks in the passage turn to and that we turn to in the face of terrifying times. But then we'll see how Jesus graciously takes each one of these security blankets away. And he calls the disciples and he calls us to respond differently. He calls them and us away from a life of fear to a life of faith. From panic to endurance to trust in the God who reigns over the beginning and the end and every moment in between. So let's look at this more closely together. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke 21, um, starting in verse 5. Now, this whole conversation in Jerusalem begins when Jesus and his disciples walk past the Jerusalem temple. 
which was really the center of the world for Jews of his day. It was the religious, social, and political capital of everything. You know, it would be something like the White House and the Vatican collapsed together into one thing. And so as they're walking by, it says in verse 5, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture a felt board Jesus with a very well-combed beard, a meek and a mild Jesus, a really nice guy who came to earth to teach us how to be nice people. And I want you to picture that Jesus, plop him down on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House in Washington, D.C., and I want you to watch that felt board Jesus point to the White House and say, yeah, that's going to be rubble soon. And then watch him get arrested immediately by Secret Security, Secret Service and taken away. If you can imagine that, you start to feel just a tiny bit of what the atmosphere would have been like for Jesus to make this comment in Jerusalem when he did and where he did. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when you see the White House or when you see the Pentagon or the Vatican or any of these huge buildings, right, you just, they're meant to take your breath away. They're meant to give you this sense of this thing is going to be here for ages, right? They're huge. They're heavy. They're solid. But I really think a lot of these pale in comparison to the temple of, of Jesus' day. It was a massive complex. And when his disciples see it, all they can do is marvel at it. They see its size. They see its beauty. They see its holiness. The temple in Jesus' day was as sure a thing as there was in the world. That was as sure a thing as there was. You know, Rome might be in charge, and things might be rough. Like, things might be a little crazy. But Jews in Jesus' day could think, like, well, at least we've got the temple, you know? We've got the temple, and we have the ancient religious and, and legal system that we've held on to for generations. We still have that. And I look at that, and I know that's not going anywhere. It's as solid as the massive, beautiful stones gleaming there in the sun. It's something to place your faith in. And I think, honestly, we do a kind of a similar thing today. You know, in chaotic times, one of the ways that we react um, to this fear that we feel is we place our faith in the surest structure that we can find, right? The structure and the, and the, the order and the power that stands behind it. And that might be the White House and the political and military power that stands behind it. Or we might place our faith in the stock market or the housing market or the economy in general. Or it might just be the way things are in, in general, the status quo in general. You know, we want to avoid anything that might be too controversial, something that might rock the boat, because we need and we want the security of how things are. And we're afraid of what might happen if suddenly things in our lives were very different. And I have to say, as an Anglican, and I love the Anglican church, I am an Anglican, I think this is a temptation for Anglicans in particular. You know, we've literally made a denomination out of avoiding the extremes. 
Um, we, we follow what we call the via media, the middle way, right? And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. Um, but it, we also need to recognize and be honest that Anglican and Episcopalian churches historically have also had a lot of folks that are very well-to-do in society, that have a lot of societal power. There can be safety in following the middle way sometimes. And we can cling to respectability and cling to, to sameness sometimes instead of longing for something better. But Jesus said of the temple, a day is coming when this thing that looks like the safest, surest bet out there, immovable and secure, will be gone. And on one level, he was actually offering a true prophecy. 40 years after his own death in 70 AD, that temple actually was destroyed by the Roman army as they put down a major Jewish rebellion. But on a deeper level, Jesus, I think, is also saying this. Every temple that's built by human hands, including the White House and Wall Street and all the rest of all times, are actually on shaky foundations. They will be rubble one day, too. And the people that have placed their hope in those structures will feel the same way. Jesus takes the security blanket of the status quo and he snatches it right out of his followers' hands. Oh, okay. One down. I'm not liking this, but we've got to keep going. And so with that line of defense against the fear of catastrophe gone, Jesus' disciples look for something else. You turn to verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. So now that the temple, the status quo, is no longer firm ground on which to stand, the disciples try another strategy. They want to know exactly when these apocalyptic events will happen, and they want clear signs to give them lots of advance warning. You know, if they can't depend on things staying chill and secure, they want to at least know exactly what is going on and when. And don't we do the same? <laughs> we want to know the future, and we will pay lots of money and listen to the people who we think can give us the surest path of where things are going. You know, whether it be financial advisors and investors or fantasy football experts to know who to put in your start starting lineup next week. Um, or whether it be preachers who can tell us an, a detailed flowchart of exactly how the end times will unfold. Or which politician's the Antichrist, how to live our lives. You know, maybe it's a, a self-help book author. Who knows who it might be? But in a chaotic world, we want to know what is going to happen when and exactly what it all means. And that knowledge gives us security. And the more unsure we are, about how to make sense of the time that we live in, I think the more likely we are to turn to strong leaders who do seem sure about it all, people who promise to take away the ambiguity of our situation, you know, people who promise to give us simple answers, reductionist narratives, to make it clear who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, who are the enemies, and who are our friends. And we'll stick with these people no matter the cost because they give us a sense of security and solid ground 
on which to stand. Jesus knew this tendency that we have in our hearts to turn to God-like leaders with God-like knowledge. And in fact, in his own day, lots of other people came around proclaiming that they were the Messiah. They were the promised king who would deliver Israel from all its external and internal problems. But all of these would-be messiahs, as they generated followers, they had the same next move. Take up swords, try to slit as many Roman throats as possible, and throw them over through violence. And that was exactly the strategy that eventually got the Jewish temple destroyed. So I wonder, who are the people today that we look to for deliverance from terror and ambiguity? Who have you put your trust and your faith in? Who tells you who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Who promises you safety and security? Is it a preacher or a politician, a radio personality, or a self-help author? Once again, Jesus takes the security blanket and he yanks it out of our hands. Do not follow them, he says. And that doesn't mean that we can't trust or follow or listen to or or elect anybody, ever. That's not what he's saying. But what he does mean is don't become their disciple. Don't devote your life, stake your well-being, or hitch your ride to a would-be Messiah. Jesus knew what that would lead to. And in love, he tells us to watch out so that we will not be deceived. So now for the last security blanket our own plans, and our own preparedness. So after warning his disciples in verse 8 to not get hoodwinked by false messiahs in their search for the answers, Jesus starts talking about some confusing things. Let's be honest. Raise your hand if you're confused when the gospel reading was going on. He starts talking about these wars and earthquakes and all these things. And first, he warns his disciples in verse 9 about events that he knew would result from people following these false messiahs. He talks about wars and uprisings, which he foresaw would lead to the destruction of the Jewish temple. But he says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he starts talking about even more catastrophic events to come. Wars between entire nations, earthquakes and famines, fearful events and great signs from heaven. And it may well be here that that Jesus is talking about things that he thinks will precede the true day of the Lord. The time when God does come to intervene in our world to set things right. The day that all those who've experienced injustice long for. And it could be that he is talking about that. But he doesn't say so explicitly. And actually, instead of going into more detail, instead of resolving the ambiguity and making it abundantly obvious what he's saying, he actually redirects his disciples' attention to somewhere surprising. The present. The meantime. In other words, he's saying, yes, one day God will come to judge the world. God will come to set things right. But before this happens... Before the true day of the Lord comes, you have a life to live. Let's talk about that. You know, it actually kind of, as I was reading this, it sort of reminded me of one of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings. 
Um, when Frodo, the little hobbit, is lamenting to the uh, sagacious Gandalf, the wizard, he's lamenting the fact that as a little hobbit, he's suddenly found himself thrown into the most dangerous events of his time. And so he turns to Gandalf, the wizard, and Frodo says, I wish the ring, this, this magical thing that's caused all the problems, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, I'm sure some of you even know the lines if you've seen this movie enough. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. But unfortunately, Jesus is very clear about what the time given to his disciples is going to look like. He tells them they're called to follow a life that looks a lot like his. A life that's lived walking in the way of the cross. And as they wait for God to come restore this world that's gone crazy, his disciples are actually called to sacrificially bear witness to God's love sacrificially bear witness to God's love for the world in Christ, and sometimes at great cost. During your life, he says, people will seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and, and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. And he keeps going, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. That's intense. And sure enough, if you go on and read in the book of Acts about what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, these are the things that happen to his disciples in the book of Acts. And our, today, I mean, let's, let's be honest, like our context here where we live is obviously very different. But obedience to Jesus has a cost in every culture, including here in America. And it is very important that we do not forget that many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience these things today in a very literal way still. And I think it's here, as we begin to talk about this cost of following Christ in the meantime, that the third tempting security blanket shows up. And that's the security blanket of looking to our own strategies, our own plans, our own preparedness to save us. So even as Jesus warns his followers that they'll be arrested for their faith in him and put on trial with their lives on the line, he also tells them, but make up your mind ahead of time not to worry about how you will defend yourselves. And the Greek word that, he's, that he uses there is actually the word for rehearsing a speech. He's like, don't rehearse your speech before you get on trial. And I do note that with a bit of irony in the sense that I discovered that while preparing this. But don't mind that. <laughs> but I think, really, what, what Jesus is getting at here is that we often try our very hardest to do whatever we can to manage the risk of following him. And so we rely on our own skills, our own ingenuity, our own contingency planning to get us out of rough spots. As one of my professors used to say, we think that we can save ourselves. We think that we can save our world through our own frantic activity. 
we want to follow Christ, but we also want to be in control. And Jesus says we can't have both. And in love, he takes this final security blanket away too. Even our dependence on our own well-meaning plans has to go. So what are we left with? Because I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm like starting to get, even though I knew what I was going to say, I'm starting to get frustrated all over again. I'm frustrated because I like the security of the status quo. I like to put my trust in people who can give me the answers. And I really like my own plans and my own ideas. And I have trusted in my own words to get me out of tight spots more than once. So when the world is crazy and it feels at times like our lives are just hurtling towards oblivion, why would Jesus deny us these things that give us a sense of peace and security? I think it's because he wants to offer us something much, much better. See, all of these three security blankets have one thing that is very much in common. All of them are born out of fear. They're ways of trying to make our fears go away. They're ways of shielding our vulnerability and minimizing risk while trying to live, and for many of us here, while trying to follow Jesus in a crazy world. But here's the thing. Since these strategies are born out of fear, since they come out of fear, they're also controlled by fear. They actually take away our freedom. And as you lean into them, you'll find that the thing that once felt like a security blanket starts feeling a lot more like a straitjacket. And if you feel like your life is hanging over the abyss, I mean, you really don't have a choice but to grab onto whatever you can find, you know, even if it's not good for you. But Jesus does not call us to a life that is controlled by fear. He does not call us to a life of managing fear and minimizing risk. No, he calls us to a life of faith in the God who is with us and who is for us and who even raises the dead. As he says in verse 9 and over a 100 other times in the Bible, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he tells them in verse 14 not to place their hope in their own well-rehearsed plans, not so that they can be foolhardy, but so that he can give them words and wisdom that none of their adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I will be your advocate, he says. I will be with you. I will be for you, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And he goes even further. I don't know if you picked up on this, but right after telling the disciples that some of them will literally be put to death, he then says, but not a hair on your head will perish. How is that possible? Because one day, God even will raise the dead. The Apostle Paul would later write that he was utterly convinced that not even death would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, for those in Christ, as much as it might feel like it, our life is not dangling over the abyss. We are held fast by the love of God, the love that is stronger than death, and that through Jesus overcame the grave. 
And so rather than dangling over the abyss, rather than feeling ultimately vulnerable and desperately reaching for whatever kind of security we can find, I think it's more like we're in a situation of people who are trying to navigate a ropes course. You know, our heart might be pounding, our knees might be wobbling as we try to make the next step that we have to take, but we are held secure by the one that holds the rope. We are not ultimately vulnerable, and we will not fall to the ground. And so rather than clinging to false hopes and frantically seeking safety, Jesus calls us in verse 19 to stand firm that we might win life. Life meaning both the life to come, life resurrected on the other side of the grave, and also life now, a life that is freed from fear, a life that is not held captive, a life of faithful endurance and witness, of patience and prayer. As I was thinking about this passage and praying, one person who came to mind for me, um, who embodied this life as well as anybody I've ever met, is my good friend, Miles, who passed away just about a month ago. And Miles was a public school teacher for 43 years, taking the time every year to read his kids the entirety of the Chronicles of Narnia, changing kids' lives by believing that their life had dignity and worth. He was a prayer warrior who took the time to pray faithfully for the people in his church and his community, and he wrote innumerable personalized prayers um, by hand and by email and sent them to people all over the world. I received lots of those prayers at times when I really needed them. On a meager teacher's salary, he gave as sacrificially as anybody I've ever met and funded countless ministries gave to people who are in need. And finally, Miles baked cookies. He spent months perfecting a recipe for cookies that he called chocolatis, these amazing cake-like, uh, they're just incredible. But in his recipe is prayer. He prayed over every single batch, wrapped every cookie individually, and sent them to people all around the world as a sign of care and as a sign of love. And at his funeral, I found out that they had been sent to people in all 50 states, all seven continents, and nearly 90 countries. It's pretty incredible. And Miles went out of his way, in particular, to encourage me and Lena in our transition to Redeemer. It was one of the biggest encouragers of our ministries and our callings here that we had. But Miles didn't live an easy life. He didn't fit the mold of the American dream. He experienced conflict and rejection from his family. And he had a persistent loneliness that dogged him right up until the end. But he also knew what it is to trust in the powerful love of God. He wasn't content with the status quo. He wasn't dependent on any false messiah. And he wasn't frantic to save the world with his own plans. That's why he was able to take the time 
to bake cookies. And at his funeral, over 200 people showed up to bear witness to the ways that his life revealed the faithfulness of God. Friends, I pray that today each one of you would hear Jesus saying to you, do not be afraid. I pray that you would leave a life of fear behind and place your faith in the God who is with you, who is for you, and the God who even raises the dead. I pray that you would find ways, even this week, to live a life of faithful witness and endurance, patience, and prayer. And I pray that you would know, in the midst of a crazy world, that God will hold you fast. Amen.